Hi, this is Jim Labedo, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today is Dr. Bruce Piasecki, the president and founder of AHC Group Incorporated, a management consulting firm specializing in energy materials and environmental corporate matters, whose clients range from Suncor Energy and Warren Buffett's firms such as Shaw Industries to Toyota and other global companies. He's the author of a couple national bestsellers, but we're talking with Bruce today about his new book, Doing More with Less, The New Way to Wealth. Dr. Bruce Piasecki, welcome to the program. Glad to meet you, Jim, and excited about this talk. Well, let's get started. I saw your book in my travels to the airport, and, and I thought, well, that's interesting, doing more with less, because the first thing that flashed in my mind when I talk to company presidents or I talk to employees, it seems like everybody is doing more with less, but the model is, well, we just we used to have... Ten people in our HR department handling all of our employees. Now we have two, and somehow those people are supposed to get something done. That's what I thought about when I saw the title of your book, You know how corporations today are cutting back on employment and expecting people to produce more. But really, that's not the, the core of your book. And so give our audience the premise behind doing more with less. Sure, Jim. So I'm in a taxi going to visit a Harvard business graduate in Istanbul, and um, I'm talking to the taxi because it's, you know, they got seven hills and 14 million people in Istanbul, so it's taken a while, and his English is broken, but when I come up to the subject of Ben Franklin, he goes, in broken English, Ben Franklin, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. And I just thought it was so funny, Jim, that here's this guy, he's a Turk, he's far away, and he knows this global citizen, Ben Franklin, who had always been my supercharged superhero. So I chose to reread Ben Franklin's autobiography uh, and his famous essay, The Way to Wealth. And what I now believe, in a world of seven billion souls, where we have to compete against Turkish people and against Brazilians and about those in India, in a positive way, compete to work with them and to win, we have to become like Ben Franklin all over again. And and he taught me, and my 30 years of management practice, Jim, taught me the arts of competitive frugality. So today, I hope we talk about the three fundamental features of competitive frugality and why that helps us get ahead and free in a world that's very turbulent and swift. When I was reading your book, fellow talk show host Dave Ramsey, who appears on this radio station also, he starts out his program today saying, the new status symbol is not the BMW, but it's the paid-off mortgage. And and I that kind of resonates, I think, with a certain group Absolutely. of people. Absolutely. Yeah. What is driving that? What is driving... Well, yeah, let me talk about that a little bit, Jim, because in, in the end, all eight of my books are works of social history. So in 1990, I wrote the bestseller for Simon & Schuster, In Search of Environmental Excellence. 
because during that time everybody was trying to frame and search for environmental excellence. You know, so this book is about the emotional core of people trying to determine their freedom in a world that's very fateful. So the first thing to do is to avoid the dance of debt, and that um, in the old way of capitalism, in a kind of capitalism where bigger and was always better, instead of smarter and more frugal is better, um, everything was upward and outwards, you know, back in that old kind of 1950s capitalism that I was born into. The notion of, you know, Walt Whitman's phrase, all goes onwards and upwards, nothing collapses, and to die is different than whatever anyone supposed and luckier. Well, that's a fantastic fantasy, but very difficult to apply to our own lives. And so doing more with less, the new way to wealth, starts with the premise that avoiding the dance of debt, no matter how beautiful it feels, no matter how good she looks, no matter how wonderful her spin is, the first path to freedom is avoiding debt. So I tell many stories of how I built my management consulting firm, where I now have some of the smartest lawyers and former executives and CEOs working with the 400 multinationals we work for, by eliminating debt as soon as possible. Now, Jim, I need to let you know that my initial partner owned Rembrandts in his family, so it was always good to have a very wealthy person attached to my first decade and avoid the debt of banks. But I do also need to let you know that I grew up in a family where when my father died as a military man, when I was three, my mother had $27 in the bank. So doing more with less, the new way to wealth, is this century's Ben Franklin story. It's about finding ways to avoid debt, and in the act of becoming frugal, you become more loyal to your team, your team becomes more loyal to you, you learn how to use your time better, and you also become more effective in business. So that's the theme of this book, which is a very easy read. Yes, I would concur. It's an easy read. But let's talk a second about um, this avoidance of debt. Okay. It sounds great, uh, but I'm sure there are some um, senior management people listening to this program. There are some business owners listening to this program saying, well, that's great, Bruce, but how do I fund my future growth then? Isn't going into debt for the right reasons uh, to invest in future growth uh, pay the dividends for me then? There's two things to say about that, Jim. The, the, the first is I'm not advocating the elimination of the smart use of debt. Um, a friend of mine who I write about in this book owns half of Broadway in the town that my daughter and wife and I celebrate and then we work outside of. And he bought those buildings on Broadway in Saratoga 40 years ago for five cents to the dollar, um, leveraged debt for 10 to 15 years, uh, worked with 5,000 contractors to rebuild the backbone of downtown Saratoga, and it is now the fastest-growing county in New York State, based on the same principles that I'm advocating in this book. There is a difference between cheapness and frugality. Frugality is the concept where you know that you are truly on top of your debt. Let me demonstrate for a minute. Um, frugality is about using money that can use other people's money, 
but you use it in a Franklin wise way. So, for example, when I bought my first and second home, um, I did everything I could, even though I was poor, to avoid principal mortgage insurance. The whole concept that an individual needs to insure a larger home than the bank wants to give them to is the type of decision-making that I think is faulted. So when I work for a CFO in a Warren Buffett firm, he's already financially disciplined to know that he needs creditworthiness. And so the second feature of debt is that creditworthiness that is very low-rated is insane. And so I would also argue that what my book is about is how to achieve freedom and effectiveness in a world of too much cheap credit. And people sometimes in America don't understand how easy it is to be tempted. My firm is now 30 years old. Many times firms have come, twice in particular in the last five years, to buy my firm. One time I dealt with the pressure by simply working with the entity for 10 years as a partner. The other time I simply said no. Those people wanting to buy us were so riddled with debt in their attempt to dominate the space of management that I work in that it struck me like I would ta- I'd be taking my baby and throwing her out into the cold. So to answer the question, there are at least three levels of debt that should be avoided. Personal debt, family debt, and wealth creation debt, uh, uh, you know, your own legacy if essentially you're living in a fantasy because it seems like it's more important to have 4,000 people working for you rather than 3,200 loyal producers. In your book, you say that uh, there's really a new approach to the management of money, people, and rules. Tell our audience about that. Sure. I used to teach, as I was hedging, uh, I used to teach in an excellent business school, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute on Monday nights, and I would meet these brilliant scientists and engineers who were going to become business executives. And what I realized is that they didn't necessarily have the people skills. They might have the technical financial skills, but they were going to become functionaries within a corporation in general because they didn't have people skills. They might know a little bit about money formation and money and debt, but they didn't have people skills. And In particular, most of them didn't respect government or understand the many tax and stability benefits of learning how to work with government rather than against it. So having now worked in a third of the world's largest megacities, having built a management consulting firm that's as or more competitive than the McKinsey's and the accounting firms, I can tell your listeners that all deals boil down to a smart, frugal rebalancing of money, people, and debt. I want to contrast this now to the presidential debates where a member of my family sold a company to Mitt Romney when he was the CEO of Bain. And this is the way it worked back in this type of senile capitalism that I think will not be sustained. So my relative Uh, already made a successful company that did asbestos removal in about 17 states. And Bain approached them and said, all right, you got four partners, come up with another million. right, so essentially the first logic of Bain is go to the capitalist, get them to take money out of their own pocket, out of their own wealth creation. Second, they said, well, match that eight to one, which which appeals to most psyches. 
So then with the $9 million, uh, Mitt himself called up Stanford Endowment, called up the Harvard Endowment, called up all associated endowments, and got $250 million in debt. Soon the company did become the largest asbestos removal firm for a while. They fought debt for more than a decade and never became as competitive or as fun a place to work as when they were when they were in 17 states. I see this, Jim, a thousand times per decade. I find it very interesting that a man who can say, in terms of my stock, this was the best deal I've done in my life, but I'm not going to vote for Mitt Romney because that type of capitalism is bubble, burst, senile type capitalism. So what I'm talking about in my, and I didn't want to politicize this, my book is meant to last 15 or 20 years if it can. It's really getting back to the fundamentals of what is sensible debt, what is sensible capitalism, and what is actual competition. And it all boils down to a sensible balance of money, people, and roles. Well, like you said, not to get political, but at the same time, what you're really talking about there, and let's put it in the context of the business environment, there seems to be still a factor in business that says, let's go into debt, let's get bigger, and it appears, like you said, to create these artificial bubbles. So how do you counteract that, what I would call probably 90s or early 2000s thinking? It's a great question. And I'd like to tell two stories related to it. Um, in, in Doing More With Less, the second chapter is called Creativity and Scarcity. And it's based on the fact that in my life, whenever I found myself against a hard wall where I really felt it on my butt and my upper shoulders, and I had to make the toughest decisions of either firing this senior executive or severing a strategic alliance partner or borrowing more money than I felt comfortable with, I decided that it's in the face of scarcity that we become most inventive. So I have in that, uh, in that chapter, which I hope people find, if, if you guys email me at bruce at ahcgroup.com, I'll send this chapter for free because it's been republished in 34 nations in a beautiful, colorful issue. But I tell the story in it, Jim, about Pat Mahoney. And Pat Mahoney is one of the 3,300 corporate affiliates in my firm that I serve and my staff serves. Um, and Mahoney has been in this network of leaders for 18 years. And uh, he built a billion-dollar facility about 10 years ago that I helped him on. And in the chapter is about a $1.2 billion facility that any of your listeners could see in action at energyanswers.com. It's called the Fairfield Renewable Energy Facility. It's a perfect embodiment of what I mean by the arts of competitive frugality. First of all, Mahoney is creating a resource recovery facility in Baltimore Harbor. He's going to one of my current clients, FMC, and he's leasing the contaminated land for 100 years, right? So he understands strict and several and contingent liability under RECRA and Superfund laws that I've worked on. He's taking the liability off the books of FMC. That's why FMC is a chemical maker that destroyed the land during World War II is want, wanting to get it off their books and bring it back into productivity. 
Pat has then received several tens of millions in, from the Obama stimulus package because Baltimore needs action in that harbor. It's been isolated and damaged assets. The stakeholders and the environmentalists in the area, because we assembled them all last October when, when the Obama money came through, we, we knew that Pat Mahoney didn't want to put up $1.2 billion. You know, this is a story of intelligent debt, a concrete story of sustainability and the reuse of damaged assets. So we, we, we need to make energy contracts with the key utilities, and we need to do shipping of the waste that's going to come in through the harbor rather than through the streets. And so the, um, this is the kind of work we do day in and day out at my firm for the last 30 years, the AHC group. So we used a Norwegian cleanup company, Arcadis, which made several million cleaning it up to reuse. We used the former utility that we had worked with and reconfigured with some um, with, uh, some infusion of money. And we also used um, the stakeholder network, all in a positive way of what I'm describing in the book, as reactions to scarcity. There just is not another way to deal with the waste stream that is polluting and fulfilling um, the landfills in that area. So we think in that capitalism has reached a point when you have 7 billion people on Earth where you have to be creative in this frugal way. And so Pat Mahoney this January in Phoenix is talking to 80 of our multinationals on what he's calling multiple company solutions to sustainability. That's what I mean, Jim, about looking at the world from the lens of a Ben Franklin. You have to be competitive. You have to be an intelligent capitalist. But you also have to learn how to work with others. And so, in the end, Pat Mahoney is a master of balancing rules. We had all these taxation rules. We had all these renewable energy credit rules. We had all these uh, Obama stimulus rules. Money, because he's capable of using only several million of his own to create a $1.2 billion project. And then he's also using people in the positive sense of social value. Capitalism, in the end, is about social value not just financial value, and that's why you could bring all these partners together. So I, I need you to know, and I need your listeners to know, Jim, that my books are never concept-led. They're, they're based on trying to explain the things that I've learned that are working as a management consultant. And so I think the arts of competitive frugality are working far more effectively than just taking more loans from a bank. And Bruce, let's just uh, shift for just a second. What is your insight on the national debt and what appears to be a lot of waste that's going on our government leaders? How does what you talk about apply over to them, or should apply, I should say? I think there's three things to say, and those listeners of you that want to get into it in real depth, uh, you can go to worldincbook.com. I wrote a book, World Inc., on debt um, not too many years ago, in 2007, that's made it into nine different languages. And the first premise that we have to proceed is to understand that no president and no nation state really matters in the way that they have for the last 200 years. They matter in national security, but when it comes to world markets, the 500 largest companies in the world, what I describe as World Inc. companies, the largest companies in the world are more important to figure out their money, people, and rules 
than it is to figure out, is this a Belgium decision or an American decision or a Canadian decision? And, and your listeners should know that in any given year, my firm works for 40 of the largest companies in the world. So when you begin to globalize the market, when you begin to realize that the world is, in fact, that financial flows are, in fact, larger than nation states, you do need to worry about the debt of Greece or the debt of America. And, and I've, I've actually gone and I've interviewed the ministers of finance in Greece, and I do, in my books, talk about debt. But overall, the debt of a nation is not as significant as the debt of an individual. So... If you look at the reality that the federal debt, which is appalling, will cost each of us roughly $5,000, that 5000 Jim, is nothing compared to the hundreds of thousands in debt that some of the average American business people have. So the first uh, point is that companies run the world rather than nation states. And the second point is those who defend debt and those who uh, allow debt need to relate the fact that it relates to their own life. If you're making $200,000 a year and you spend 205000 you are not truly a capitalist because you're not coming to own the means of production. So with these paradoxes I'm working through, the third thing is politics does matter, but it doesn't matter as much as we think. So I listen to the presidential debates, and I'm a former federal lobbyist before I formed my S corporation. I could tell you that most of it is wheel spinning. Most of it is ideological gesture, and I don't worry about it as much to my clients as I used to. So I hope that helps keep perspective, Jim. What really matters is personal wealth creation, family legacy, and the longevity of our firms, um, not national debt. Well, thank you for that insight. And I want to go back to one, just one small section of your book. Uh, I'll quote from the book. You're talking about Obamacare, and you, in your paragraph you say, the surprising social and industrial lesson from this change, meaning the implication of Obamacare, is most of us will learn how to spend less on health care. How does that affect us in spending less, and is that really going towards your principle of frugality? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell it in two ways. First of all, I'm an ex-basketball player, and all of your listeners could probably tell that one of the ways I made it from factory life, where my mother had $27 to the bank, to getting a Ph.D. at Cornell, was by playing sports. And so I've had 11 sports-related surgeries, five knee surgeries. Now, my personal encounter with the health system shows me, and I befriended a Harvard doctor who actually has worked on my knees three times now, so I've gotten to know him over 15 years. He and I both share the same worldview that I'm talking about in my book, that if you're really good at what you're doing, you can do it and charge less. If you're doing surgeries that are not truly needed, or if you're working on patients that are not prepared to invest in their own health, you're creating a different form of complex bubble. So the passage that you read is a passage that very much fulfills the spirit of Ben Franklin. If you become like Ben Franklin all over again, you're going to be frugal in your own health. You're going to be inventive in earning a part of your own health, if that means going to the gym every day to reduce stress or if that means taking long walks with your wife. The, the third thing that I think is wrong with the medical system, and I'm not an expert in this and I don't pretend to be, is that when you get so many rules that defend excess, 
something like Obamacare had to happen because it's a balancing act to include many people that have been ostracized from care, right, that haven't had a, a chance for medical care. It's bringing them into a large umbrella, and it's also at the same time creating intervening systems to eliminate excessive application of medical benefits. A lot of the ideology of the current law neglects the fact that it's doing two things at once, not just one. It's increasing the total numbers of people served, and that has a kind of gross averaging and total cost, which lessens total cost uh, in theory, and, and we'll see soon if it hap happens. It, it does serve that way in Scandinavian countries and other model countries people have looked at. But again, I'm not an expert. But the other feature of the art of competitive frugality is it teaches the buyer of insurance that they shouldn't necessarily have um, a minimum deduction. They should have some large deduction, which teaches them how to use the system more selectively instead of every weekend. Well, thanks for sharing that with our, uh, with our audience, Bruce. And it's a complex issue, but I appreciate your insights on that. So let's talk about the leaders of our organizations as we try to instill uh, some of your principles here. Part of that is getting people to be more industrious. So how, does, as leaders, do we get our people to actually produce more and, and do more with less? I think the first thing is you have to be a model of that. So to set up stark contrast, if you're Jeff Skilling at Enron and everything you do is a model of excess, there will be 15 layers underneath you at Enron that are models of excess. Um, recently, I built a new headquarters, and last year built it without debt. I did it, Jim, for two reasons. I wanted to be loyal to several of the workers in my firm, and I knew that if I didn't give them a place closer to where they work in their current lifestyle, I might lose them. And they were so high-quality people that I built this new headquarters, um, renovated a damaged asset, made it quite beautiful without debt. So I talk of things that if you do it with frugality and diplomacy, they will follow. So that the first feature of leadership is you need to understand the broad context of everything you do. That if you're wasteful, they will be wasteful. The second thing of uh, being industrious, and this is Ben Franklin again all over again, is that you, you need to know how to work in systems. And the Pat Mahoney story shows you that, you know, and Ben Franklin again, if he doesn't want to buy books, he creates a public library. If he doesn't want to walk in mud, he creates sidewalks. If he doesn't want to read by candlelight, he thinks of the lightning bolt. Essentially, you have to work beyond your own self-based boundaries. And you have to understand that your wealth is given to you by a set of social decisions that were favored by society, not just created by your own ego. So the best way to enable industriousness is to foster it in the ways I talk about in my new book, Jim. So part of that is fighting the human tendency to be self-centered. Absolutely. I used to think I was so important, Jim, because I had 45 people in my firm, um, and, and that's the arrogance of youth when I'm 30, right? By the time I'm 58 now, I realize I'm making more profit margin and having more freedom with 15 people and having three times the impact in terms of changing the companies. So there is a 
There, in fact, my new book that I'm working on called um, Doing More with Teams, which will come out in March with the same publisher, John Wiley and Sons, is a book that furthers these thoughts about competition and, and shows that ultimately youthful waste and the arrogance of youth and also rampant individualism can get you a Lance Armstrong, but that's another form of a bubble. That in the end, capitalism is about leading change through teams, enabling innovation through teams, working beyond the boundaries of an individual ego, managing the complexity of teams, and understanding this broader competitive context. So as my work evolves, Jim, I keep trying to pursue these themes of becoming Ben Franklin all over again. In your book, you talk about the importance of the near future, how we have to pay attention to the near future. Share that with our audience, your insight on that. Uh, there's two, two reasons to say that. The first is, um, if you Google my name and you come across a great journalist, Dave, David Gibbons, you'll hear hours of, of, of exploration where he wanted me to think out loud about why I'm creating this um, training institute for the near future. I, th I think that humans have a lot of trouble, and I, certainly I did in my own life, thinking beyond a decade, maybe even thinking beyond five years. And I know that for the CFOs and the leadership councils that I work for, the higher you go in the chain, the harder it is to think beyond a year or two or three, and yet that's exactly why they're getting the big bucks on top. So the near future is something that's palpable, discernible, and we understand that it's about choice. We understand that we have the freedom to choose something right that improves our near future, or we have the freedom to fail by choosing the wrong thing. So I don't, I'm not the type of writer, Jim, that wants us to think about 50 years from now. I'm the type of writer that tries to give the principles of how to navigate the, your own near future. And that helps me understand competition a little bit better, capitalism a little bit better, government policy a little bit better. And so the near future is something that we can feel and we want so that we have to work towards getting it. I hope that helps define near future. It does. Thank you. So you pick up a new client today, and, and you have a chance to give one piece of advice to the CEO. What would that be? Yeah, and what's wonderful is... Uh, we now have access to 40 or 50 of them a year. My advice would be remain competitive with less debt. Stimulate the hire of not a Steve Jobs in your company, but many Ben Franklins. And third, try and remember that the true purpose of your wealth creation is social. Social, and, uh, I mean, I get the word, but... Put that in more context. You talk well, about we're a lot trained about in business to think that wealth and worth is measured only in finance. In the stories that I tell in my work, um, I'm showing that a guy like Ben Franklin understood from the start that the true purpose of money is social impact. We're doing these things to better the world. We're doing these things to better people. We're doing these things to better ourselves so that the mark of success in the 21st century is going to be so transparent that the system will find corruption in Penn State. The system will find corruption in Lance Armstrong. And those that are going to laugh their way to the bank, Jim, 
are going to be the authentic ones, like a Ben Franklin, that can say at a certain point in his career, when he was 40, he didn't need to work any longer. Just like when I was 42, I didn't need to work any longer. But the reason I've worked the next 16 years and want to work the next 20 after this is the social satisfaction of doing that work. So Franklin says, in the way of wealth, so much for industry, my friends, and attention to one's own business. But to these, we must add frugality if we would make our industry more successful over time. I think there's a truth to everything he's saying about industriousness, what he's saying to his friends, what he's saying about his own business. But he also became a great philanthropist. Uh, he, he became a great giver of social value in, in his life. And so when I celebrate Ben Franklin as a world citizen and doing more with less, it's because I know it's going to prove true in America as it's proving true in Canada, Turkey, and Brazil. We won't have time to get into it today, but I did notice on your website that one of the topics that you um, share with audiences is the uh, uh, the topic of recruiting and retaining talent in modern times. So while we won't have time to explore that whole topic, the one piece of advice you would give leaders in that category today would be what? Better not to go after and hire dozens of people. It's better to spend the time getting a 360-degree review where at the right level in your firm, the person that you're going to hire to be a potential leader and water walker, concentrate on those three to five people. If you're a leader of an organization that's based on technology and rules and human capital, make sure that the leaders that you hire embody in their actions the arts of competitive frugality, because they will... I I hired a woman who's now at Goldman Sachs, but for six years she doubled in value to me because I tried to find somebody that had these arts of competitive frugality. And it's now happened 15, 20 times in my firm. So I think it's better as a human recruiter to seek someone who's smart, brilliant, hardworking, and loyal and frugal rather than just quantitatively very smart. Bruce, is there one question today I should have asked you that I haven't? I love that question. Uh, who, who am I fascinated by besides Ben Franklin? Because you can probably tell from this interview, Jim, that I'm a little preoccupied with Ben Franklin. And the answer is, I don't know yet. <laughs> so I've got to get over that Ben Franklin thing. Okay. Bruce, thanks for being on the program. Hey, man, keep up the good work, and thank you for finding me in an airport. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.